and that it may build us up in the faith and may help us give us greater understanding into your ways and into you. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, a pleasure for us all, brethren, to be gathered together here once again on the Lord's Day. And more than that, that we have the Lord's Word in our hand. Amen. And uh, it's so very important. And every once in a while, the Lord, he'll send, you, he'll send you a little blessing on the Lord's Day morning, which he has this morning by sending Orlin and Sherry Wick with us this morning. I've known them for, what, about 125 years now, something like that. And uh, it's so nice to see the brothers. Amen. It's so good to, when the Lord brings us together and so... So thankful that we have God's word, amen, that unites us together in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do here, we preach verse by verse through the Bible. And uh, this morning, we certainly are again taking up together the book of Acts. And so by way of remembrance, because again, as I look at my own uh, hair, my own mind, uh, we need to be reminded often, brethren, about where we're at. So just in context again this morning, I want to remind us here that we are indeed, as Howard has said earlier, we are indeed right in the middle of God's glorious, inspired book of church history. Amen. And again, this is exactly what we can look at. If we're going to mimic ourselves, which Paul says to do, the church should mimic itself after the early church. Amen. And what the early church was doing, we should be doing. Amen. And so this is what we're doing. We're just allowing the Spirit of God to, as we walk through verse by verse through the book of Acts, to again, keep us in line, brother. Amen. Because uh, when men put their own thoughts, their own minds to things, we get uh, in trouble real quickly, amen? And uh, the church, God has designed for it a certain purpose for it and a certain power that he has instilled in it. And so uh, this morning as we are gathering together, I just want to remind us again that it is indeed the glorious handiwork of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit as he is indeed building and fitly tying together the churches of God. Amen. The churches of Christ, as the Bible speaks of them. Amen. In our last meeting, we finished chapter 16. And chapter 16, of course, was a glorious chapter. We saw the Lord God himself as he is knitting the church together. We saw him open Lydia's heart. Amen. We saw him open Lydia's heart. And what that literally means is when we looked at that, that he took away the obstructions so that, he, that she could understand what Paul was preaching, amen, until the Spirit of God does a miraculous work like that, you can preach, and it's like preaching to the bench over here, amen, when God takes the Holy Spirit of God, regenerates one, and he opens their heart to be able to hear the Word of God, that's when we see what Lydia and her household did, Lydia and her whole household, the Bible says, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then followed through with what we uh, would call believers baptism amen so we saw that we saw them believe on the lord jesus christ all the household and they simply were obedient to what the uh the if you will the record of acts reveals to us second of all we saw the lord again do another great work there in the chapter 16 amen as he brought forth <laughs> the lord like i like to say the lord placed his preachers deep down into this prison brother and he just didn't put them in the prison he placed them deep down into the inner circles of the prison and then he sent a most glorious, a most divine earthquake into this jail, amen? And it was very limited, as we looked at last week, by God himself. It was limited to that jail, and it didn't crumble to pieces like most earthquakes would cause a building to. And here's the real miraculous thing about what took place. The Bible says that that earthquake caused what? All the doors to open, 
Amen? All the gates were opened, and not only that, brethren, but that all of the shackles fell off of the prisoners. The doors are open. The shackles have fallen off. And here's the miraculous thing, brethren, again, because generally when a prisoner sees the door open and the shackles fall off, where do they go? They head immediately out the door. They are gone. And, of course, we know what happens back in that in the Roman era. If you were put in charge of guarding a prisoner and just one prisoner got away, you know what they did. It was immediate death. It was immediate death for you. Amen. So we see God's miraculous hand working there as all the prisoners stayed, all the shackles were off. But, brethren, God again used this glorious act to have this man come in, the one who indeed was the center of God's affections in all of that, the Philippian jailer. Amen. What does the Bible say? You remember just giving you, just laying the ground, the foundation. The Philippian jailer came in. He came in trembling and fell before the preachers. And he asked the most important eternal question that anyone could ever ask. Any man, any woman, any child. He's trembling there in God again as he's drawing his own sheep out of there, the lost sheep. He comes trembling and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What a glorious, again, question that every man, woman, and child must contend with. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas the preachers that they were, they just simply said what God said. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Which is exactly what the scripture says. They then what? They then taught the scriptures a little more diligently to the jailer and to all of his household. Who then what? Believed and did what? Again, here's the pattern we see over and over again in the book of Acts. They believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they followed through in what? In believers' baptism. They were saved, amen? They got saved, and it's an amazing, stunning thing. And then it leads us this morning, brethren, to the glorious text here as we look at this together. God's divine works, his acts, brethren, continue to work. In fact, we see again in our text the most amazing work of God. God is continuing, brethren, even to think of this for a moment, brethren. We are part of something. This morning, if you're saved, if you are a part of the Lord's church, you are part of something that God has been doing for eons of time now. Think of that for a moment. In fact, we see here in chapter 17 that God building and fitly tying together his church. You're the church. You, you guys realize this, right? I mean, we're, we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are believers are the church. This building means nothing. The building is nothing. I could be, you, we could be meeting in my basement out at my house out there, and the church is gathered together. Amen? We just happen to be blessed to have a building that uh, the Lord miraculously paid for and as a spot for us to meet, but it may soon be coming to an end. As I always say, we may be going back to house churches like they did in the beginning before there were buildings. But anyway... We see here, I want you to see again, God's miraculous work as it continues. Look at verse number four of our text. Verse number four, look what the Bible says there. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. So in other words, God's work is continuing. So Paul and Silas are coming there, and we're going to dive down into the text. But I want you to see here, because of what the Lord is doing through Paul and Silas, his church continues to grow. Unaffected, brethren, by me and you, amen, it is something that God is doing. He's using us, but... He grows his church. He adds to the church daily them who, what, are saved. We're simply faithful like we're going to look at. We're going to see Paul and Silas. They were faithful men of God. 
and what they did. And brethren, again, we should mimic. We should do exactly what they did. Look at verse, if you would, number 12. Look at verse number 12. Paul gets moved to Berea and look at the results of, of their preaching. Look there, if you would, at verse number 12. Therefore, many of them believed also of honorable men, uh, women, in which were Greeks and men uh, not a few. And so, again, God is continuing through the working of Paul and Silas, through the preaching of his gospel. We're going to look here at these four things that Paul did during his preaching time. He is continuing, if you will, to grow his church. And he will, brethren, until the last elect of God is saved. Until the last one believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, the last one comes to, to Christ, he will continue to grow his church. Look there at verse number 1, if you would, of chapter 17. Let us get started on our text again this morning as we've laid the groundwork. The Lord working and saving his lost sheep as he sees fit. Look at verse number one. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollyana, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. Well, brethren, we remember that God has continually moved Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. Here they're not mentioned, but they are long as they're in their second missionary journey. And God has been moving them from city to city in a most interesting way. We're going to see that again. You ever notice, we talked a little bit about this morning in Bible study. You ever notice that when you preach the truth, when you preach the gospel, when you preach the Bible, and we see Paul again over and over again getting run out of the city. It's, it's a stunning thing, brother. When you simply stand up as a preacher and you just tell everybody God loves you and God has a great plan for you and by golly, you're this and you're that, everybody loves you. As soon as you actually teach and preach that there are indeed children of God and children of the devil, watch out. That's when they respond in a most visceral way. And we see this again, Paul leaving the city in darkness here. We're going to see again, he's getting led down through a basket. It's a stunning thing when you stick simply to the truth of God. But I want you to see what Paul does here. Again, we see that word there as God is taking them and moving them from Philippi on down the way. He has them travel southwest from Philippi on the, what's called the Initia Way. The Ignitia Way was a major Roman road. We would call it in modern-day vernacular an interstate. It would be like Interstate 94. It's east and west, just like this road. It ran from the northwest to the south. It went like this, just simply all across the Greek territory that we're talking about here that Paul and Silas are going to preach to. These cities are all along the way. In fact, as we see that, Philippi, we notice, interesting, when they left there, there's a pattern here. And we're going to have a little geography lesson this morning. You, you think you only come for what? For preaching. But there's geography, there's math, there's all kinds of things that we have here in the Bible, which is a most amazing thing. So we look together here and understand that Philippi and Amphipolis was about 30 miles apart. And so that was the first city. They left Philippi, and they traveled roughly about 30 miles. Amphipolis and Apollyana, they're about 30 miles apart. So we got 30 miles, we got 60 miles. And then finally... When he, they, get, they leave Apollyana and go to Thessalonica, and that's about 30 miles. Now, brother, why would it be about 30 miles? 30 miles to this city, 30 miles to that city, and 30 miles to that city. Well, I can tell you why. That's about as far as one could travel on their feet, that one could walk. So we've got cities all along the way here. You say, well, how is that any kind of modern thing that would be relevant for us? Have you ever noticed, <laughs> brother, and think of this for a moment as a geography lesson. Think about this for a moment. When you think about Bismarck, and you think about Dickinson, how far is Dickinson from here? About what, 100 miles, 90 to 100 miles? 
Bismarck's about 100 miles, or Minot's about 100 miles from Bismarck. Jamestown's about 100 miles from, from here. Think about that for a moment, brother. And why is that? Why are the cities spaced in the way that they are? Jamestown to Fargo's about 100 miles, amen? Because that was as far as a stagecoach could travel, amen? They would travel about that far. This is what we see here. Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke are traveling about as far as they can get on the feet. And the Lord is using them. He takes them into these cities, and they're preaching there. And so it took about three days for them to get from Philippi to Thessalonica. And again, we see this, brethren, here. And we notice in verse 2, so they're traveling. About three days later, this is where they end up. And look at verse number 2. The Bible says, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them. Now, amazingly, again, that word manner, of course, draws our attention immediately, right? That word manner there literally means, and we see here, again, Paul's inexhaustible love for the, God, for the people of God, for the nation of Israel, again. Because he, the Bible says here that his manner was to do this. What was his manner to do? as we have looked at in the past, as it continued all the way up here, and it will continue up until the end of his ministry here in the book of Acts, his manner was always to go first to the what? To the Jewish synagogue. Look at verse number one. This is where he went. He came into the city, and the first thing he did, he went to the people whom God, whom, whom God had given him this amazing passion for, the people of Israel, whom he had obviously grew up with. Look at verse number one. The Bible says that they went into the, he went into the synagogue of the Jews. Look at verse number 10. He leaves and goes to Berea. What's the first thing he does? Look at verse number 10. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night into Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. There he is again. He's heads directly into the synagogue of the Jews. Look at verse 16 and 17. So he's here. He's in Berea. And then he gets here to Athens. Look at verses 16 and 17. What does he do? Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him, and he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons in the market daily with them that met with him. And so, again, Paul's concern here is, brethren, as we see in Scripture, is again, and even as he wrote, as the Spirit of God inspired him to write other letters, we see again his continual love for God's, for the Jewish people. Look at Romans chapter 1 with me, if you would, real quickly. Again, just keeping together here with Paul's habit, his habitual doing, the thing that he did over and over and over again, which is what the word manner means. It's a habitual practice, a specific practice of long standing. It's something that he did over and over again continually. Look at Romans chapter 1, and again, as he's writing there, verse 14, I am debtor. Verse 15, I'm ready to preach the gospel, he says. And then he says this concerning the gospel in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And so again, he's placing this thing in order. He's preaching first to the Jews and then to the Greeks, amen? And that's what we see here, this pattern, this habitual thing that Paul would do in every city that he would go into. In fact, the reason is this. Look at Romans chapter 10. Look at verse number 1. This is the reason again. I said Paul had a love and a desire to see his people, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And look what he says here. I can quote it. He says, Brethren, my heart's, my prayer and my heart's desire is that what? Is that the people of Israel might be saved. And so again, this was his constant concern. This is what he was always doing, preaching to the Jews, heading to the synagogue, and preaching to them. His habitual manner, his habitual practice, his typical mode of behavior, brethren, was indeed when the Spirit sent him into a new city was to preach to the Jews 
first. In fact, our text continues with the Jewishness of Paul and what he's doing here. Look back there again at Acts chapter 17. Look at verse number 3. Where's Paul hanging out? Well, he's hanging out, if you will, in the synagogue. He's hanging out on the Sabbath day with those whom he's preaching to and those to who he's uh, opening, and we're going to see here in a moment, opening and alleging. Look there, if you will, at verse number 3. Look what the Bible says there. He says, uh, uh, let me read verse 2 again just to bring it all in. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening, the Bible says, and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And this Jesus whom I preach. So we have four actions here, really, in our text. We have, if you will, reasoning, we have opening, we have alleging, and then we have Paul preaching. And they're all different words, and they're all part of, if you will, the evangelization, the way that Paul would go, the way that he would evangelize people. We're going to look at that pattern. Brother, listen again. Isn't that what we want to do? Don't we want to do exactly what they did in the early church? If Paul did it a certain way, if I'm supposed to mimic Paul, then maybe, brother, and it would behoove us to mimic Paul in what he did in his preaching, the style of preaching, the way that he went about it, amen, using, if you will, the Lord's way of doing it. Now, verse 2 there, he says that he reasoned. Now, that word reasoned is important to us again. It literally means to dialogue. In other words, there was an exchange of questions and answers. Paul dialogued with them from the scriptures, amen? Now, this morning, we're having a monologue. Which means what? That Mike is preaching. That's it. You're not asking me questions. And I, well, sometimes I do ask you questions, but you're not asking me any questions. We are having a monologue this morning. This is not what Paul was doing when he was in the synagogue. He was having a dialogue. In other words, there were questions being asked, and he was then answering them from the scriptures. And brethren, what a glorious principle that applies to us even today. How relevant, how needful it really is. Look what he did. Look at Acts chapter 18. He did it again. This again it was his pattern. Look at Acts chapter 18. Look at verse number 4. Again, Paul is dialoguing. He's answering questions. I mean, all of us, if we've been Christians for very long at all, you have somebody come up and ask you for the reason and an answer for the reason and the hope that you have. You better have it, brethren. This is the pattern. This is what we see if you're a student of the word of God. We should always be ready. Look here at verse number 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. There's the order again. When, and when Paul, Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So again, here's Paul again, sitting in the market square, and he's dialoguing with them. He's having, they're asking questions. He's answering questions according to what? According to Paul's own reasoning? According to his own understanding? No, according to the scriptures that never change. Your emotions change. My emotions change. My thoughts change. God's word never changes. And so as we're dealing with men, we must reason with them. Amen? We must reason just as Paul reasoned with them. We must have this dialogue Look at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 18. He does it again. This is amazing, brother. And again, the pattern. The Bible says, now he's left Berea. Now he's in Ephesus. Look what he does. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. There it is again. He's having this dialogue, having this discussion with the Jews concerning scriptures and what, we're, what he's preaching to them and what he's teaching to them, what he's what? Dialoguing with them about. It's an amazing thing. In fact, 
Look at one more, one of my favorite ones in Acts chapter 24. Look there if you would. Again, just a couple of them. We are seeing a pattern. We're seeing a pattern of what Paul did. And again, brethren, we always claim it. Hey, we want to be like the New Testament church. Okay, let's be like the New Testament church then. Amen? Let's do what they did. Look at Acts chapter 24. Look at verse 24 there, if you would. The Bible says, And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, how would you like to have a wife named Drusilla? <laughs> Amen. I hope there's no Drusillas listening or watching. It's not a bad name. I'm just saying that's a different name. Verse 24, And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith of who? The faith of Christ. And he, as he reasoned, there it is again. He's having a discussion, a dialogue with Felix. He's reasoning with him about what? Of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. <laughs> and what was then Felix's response? See, when one preaches and teaches the Bible correctly, amen, there is something glorious, brethren, about a healthy fear of God. Do you understand that? One must have a fear of God. You know the scripture, I don't have time to go there, but if you actually go look it up, the beginning of knowledge is the beginning of what? The fear of the Lord. When you look in scripture, being fearful of God, it stops you from doing a whole lot of things. It keeps you in where you need to be. When you fear him biblically, it's an amazing thing. I don't want to do that because I don't want to get caught. That's not the Christian's response. I don't want to do that because... I fear God, and he's holy, and he's righteous, and he's good. That's what our response should be, amen? Look at Felix here. He's just simply Paul's reasoning with him from the scriptures about righteousness and temperance and judgment to come. What happened to Felix? He trembled and answered, go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. There it is again, Paul standing there reasoning with Felix. He's reasoning with the Jews. He's having this dialogue back and forth. And here particularly when he spoke of the judgment of God, it caused Felix a little bit of fear and a little bit of trembling, which is always good, brethren. We should have that in our own life. Luke tells us here that Paul reasoned. He dialogued with them. Again, not from his human reasoning, but from that which never changes. That which never changes, brethren. Uh, can I say it again? You change, I change. This never changes. This was Paul's foundation. This is where he went to. This is when he looked at a man or a woman, he could go and say, the Bible speaks of you, and here's how it speaks of you, and here's the remedy for you. All of us are sinners. All of us are. All of us were lost in our sin. Bound for hell, brethren. Disobedient to God, rebels of God. In fact, Romans tells us we were enemies of God. But God. And you're, that should be one of your favorite little phrases in scripture but God who is rich in mercy it's an amazing thing but brethren this is what we see here we see this Luke uh, tells us again that he dialogued with them not from his human reasoning but from scripture and the question becomes then what scripture what scripture was he using well, I'm glad you asked we're going to look at that in just a little bit if you think this morning brethren that we should unhitch from the old testament you are on your way to a devil's hell all of Scripture, all 66, amen? We believe that here, right? We believe in the inspiration of Scripture. We believe every word was inspired by God. But we also believe what? We believe in plenary as well, which means one portion of Scripture has just as so much authority as the other. It's an amazing thing. It is all authoritative. 
and is all good for us, as God surely says. Now look back there at Acts chapter 17. Look at verse number 3 again, as we kind of just pare these down. So we've got action number 1, he reasoned. Action number 2, we're going to see here, the Bible says. Look at verse number 3. Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. What is he doing? What did he just lay out there, brethren? In the simplest form, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He laid it right out there. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. That is the saving power of God. This is what he preached. But I want us to notice there, particularly, that he opened. Well, that word open there literally means to rightly explain. You know, when you are dialoguing with people concerning the word of God, you should be one who can rightly explain the word of God. One who can rightly divide the word of God. I remember one time we were street preaching down at the, uh, down at the uh, oh, along River Road. River Road. And we were street preaching there, walking along, hanging out tracks here. This was what last, oh, Keith's not here this morning. We got half our people are gone. But uh, we're handing out tracks. And I remember this guy, we walked up to him and he slips up his sleeve and he goes, you see this right here? It was Psalm 22. He goes, you know what Psalm 22 is about? Brethren, we better know what Psalm 22 is about because this is what they do. He wants to have a dialogue with me. Do you know what you're talking about? Yeah, Psalm 22 had everything to do with what? With the crucifixion of Christ, which if you look at it, and we don't have time to go there this morning, but it, I, I, the Bible doesn't say it. That's why I'm not going to be dogmatic. But I am pretty sure that when we look at what Paul was doing here as he was using the scripture, Psalm 22 was one of them that he used. They sang it. They knew it. They sang it all the time. They read it yearly, annually in the, in the synagogue. And it was all about what? The crucifixion, which, of course, if we do math. Can we have math class this morning quickly? You realize that when Psalm 22 was written, that crucifixion had not even been invented yet. Do you know how many years before crucifixion was invented by the Persians that Psalm 22 was written? 570 years before it was even invented. Here we have the inspiration of God carrying a man to write of this glorious thing that's going to take place. This death, this burial, this resurrection of Christ for the sins of his people. It's a stunning thing, brethren. But again, Paul here is opening. He's rightly explaining. He's alleging the third thing, to give evidence and proof. Brethren, can you give evidence and proof this morning from the scriptures? Again, rightly handling the scriptures. Are you growing up enough, brothers and sisters, in the Lord, if somebody would come up and say to you, see this, Psalm 22, what's that all about? I mean, it's just crazy. But just think, brethren, if I would have been like a buffoon and not been able to answer what that is, they'd have mocked you right into next week because they hate Christ. But here we are, amen, able to reason, able to dialogue, able to give an answer for what they're asking. It's an amazing thing. Alleging to give evidence and proof. And finally, preaching. That simply means to proclaim. What was Paul dialoguing about? What was Paul opening and rightly explaining the scriptures about? What was Paul opening, alleging, and preaching about? Well, this Jesus, the scripture says. <laughs> this Jesus, which, of course, a Jewish man immediately. Now, remember, the name Jesus was very, very popular in that day. In fact, there's other Jesus we see in scripture, in fact. Paul specifically says, it is this Jesus, this one, the one that Scripture speaks of. 
He's the one. He's the one that I'm proclaiming and preaching to you. That one. Not this other Jesus over here. In fact, the Bible speaks, doesn't it, doesn't it, brothers and sisters, of another Christ, another spirit, another, if you will. This is that Jesus. This is the Christ of what? The Christ of the scriptures. People believe in a lot of different kind of Jesus. Did you know that, kids? Did you know that there's a lot of people who look at Jesus and they classify him? Well, he's a good man, amen? He was a great prophet. Look, look at what they think of him. He was all of those things, brethren. But he was more. He was indeed the one that the scriptures are speaking of. It is this Jesus, which means Jehovah's Savior. A Jew would have went right away. Oh, that's Jehovah. That's what that word means. Jehovah's Savior. The Christ, what? The anointed Jewish Lord. It's amazing, isn't it, that Paul just simply, this is what he's doing. He's opening, he's alleging, he's dialoguing, he's preaching of this Christ, the one in scriptures, not the one made up in your own mind. How many times have we heard you'll tell them of the Christ of the Bible, the God of the Bible, and they'll say, I'll never serve a God like that. My God's not like that. You're right, your God isn't, because you don't have the God of the Bible, the scriptures. It is this Christ. It is this Jesus. That one must trust and believe in to be saved. Not those. Not another one. Not any other kind. It is this Christ. And that's what Paul says. This Jesus. This Jehovah. This Savior. The one who Matthew wrote about. Remember? <laughs> he's going to come and he's going to die. He's going to forgive his people of their sins. It's that one. It's that Jesus. That Christ. It is an amazing thing, brother. And will you consider that? In fact... What scriptures were they using? What portion of scripture were they using? <laughs> now, brethren, this is not a, here I am asking a question. It's not a trick question, brethren. Again, they were using what portion of scripture? Did we have the New Testament yet, brethren? No. No, we did not. They were using the power, the infinite power of God through the scriptures in the Old Testament to preach this Christ. And I want you to see this again. We have patterns. Don't run from the Old Testament, brethren. It's not like after Jesus rose from the dead, Paul and the rest of them ran from it. They didn't. All the Old Testament does, and I don't mean this in an unholy way at all, it just affirms all the things that are written of in the New Testament. It's amazing, brethren. Jesus on every page in the Old Testament, every book. He's spoken of in every book in the Old Testament but one, and I say that it alludes to him. Everyone, he is the, brethren, listen, this Jesus, the Christ that Paul preaches, he is the focal point and center of it all. He's the one. He's the one that one must believe and trust in and be obedient as the Lord gives them great power. Look at Acts chapter 8. I want you to see the scripture some of the scriptures they were using. We've, we have the pattern here. Again, I do believe Paul would have went directly to Acts chapter 22. But we know for sure we have, again, an example, if you will, in scripture. Remember, we have already preached through this. But listen, brethren, this is important. Again, what you have here is a man dialoguing. You have a man here opening the scriptures. You have a man alleging the scriptures. And you have a man who is indeed preaching them. He's proclaiming them. Look here at Acts chapter 8. And again, what? oh, we got some time. You guys like to hear scripture? I love to hear scripture read in my ears. So we're going to read this together. Amen? Look at Acts chapter 8. This particular preacher is named Philip. 
And we all know this, again, because I've preached through this. But I want you to pay careful attention to the power. To where Philip knows the power is. To where God directs him as far as the foundation and the power is. And then he has a dialogue. He's doing all of these things with this man. Look here, if you would, at verse number 26. Look what the Bible says. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. Now, <laughs> brethren, when the Spirit of God comes along and tells you to do something, uh, let's just do that. Amen? Let's not be Jonah. <laughs> let's not run the other way, and he'll come get you anyway. But just be obedient, like right here we see in Scripture, the Spirit of God that comes, the angel comes and says, Do that. So verse 27, He arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, and a unique great authority under Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, had come to Jerusalem for to worship. So again, when we looked at this, he was a worshiper of God. He was not a saved man. He was a God-fearer, a worshiper of God, like many people are today. Even There's so many God-fearers and so many worshipers of God, but not the God of the Scriptures. Amen? It's amazing. Look what it says there. Verse number 28. Was returning and sitting in his chariot reading Ephesians. No, he was not reading Ephesians. He was not reading Colossians. He was not reading Acts. He was not reading any of those. He was reading who? Isaiah, the prophet. As you know, Isaiah is known, brethren, in the Old Testament as the great evangelical Old Testament prophet. You know, Isaiah preaches more about Christ than any other prophet. It's a stunning thing, brethren, to see that. He is indeed a great orator, a great preacher of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is who this man is reading. Look what it says. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to his chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet uh, Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I except a man should, give, should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. Like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so open he not his mouth. What's he reading? He's reading Isaiah 53. Verse number 7, if you want to get real precise. So he's sitting here, he's reading God's powerful word. No testament to be found, but he's reading God's powerful word right here. Isaiah 53. And he's seeing these things, and they're having this dialogue. Who's he talking about? Is it this guy or another guy, or who is it exactly? Look at here. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. So shall declare, who shall declare his generation? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet of this? Of himself or some other man? <laughs> Here comes the Lord's preacher. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at that same scripture and preached unto him who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus is there. This Jesus of the scripture, the one that Paul is preaching, it's the same one that's in Isaiah. It's the same one that's in Ezekiel. It's the same one that's in Jeremiah. That one. That one. That Christ alone. Look what it says. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me for, to be baptized? And brethren, listen. I'm going to say this, and I know I'm going to get accused of being a King James only guy. I am not. I prefer the King James. I am not a King James guy. But if you want a Bible that has all the verses in it, go get one that does. Because most of the new translations remove this verse. Verse 37 is central to all of it. What does it say? Then Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It is who you believe in. It is who you trust in. It's not that suddenly there's water right there and we're going to go diving into the water. It's No, it's what happens first. Who do you believe in? 
It is this Christ. And so get a Bible where it's there. I, I don't want to. I can chase rabbits a little bit. I had a NIV the Lord had that I used for many years. When he first saved me in 1987, I had a, a, an NIV Bible. I call it the non-inspired version now, but I had one and God used it. But in that, you could look at the footnote down at the bottom and it would say, because I'm reading, I'm going, why does it jump from 36 to 38? What, what, don't we know math? Isn't it 36, 37, and 38? And then you look at the note and it says, they footnote it down at the bottom. Well, some manuscripts don't have I, I, I don't care what some, some manuscripts don't have it. The early manuscripts have it. Okay, That's just a fact and a reality of truth. Okay, The sound ones. But I would look at the footnote and it would say, some manuscripts don't have this. Go look at one now. Go look at the latest version of the NIV. You know what's not even there anymore? is a footnote. They take it completely out. It's gone. Now, I'm not being a King James only guy. I'm just simply stating there's some truth in the fact. The whole portion of this verse is not whether he dives into some water. It's whether or not he believed in the Jesus Christ of the Bible. That's, what it, that's the important portion of the scripture, which he does indeed dive into the water, which is a response to God opening a man's heart when they believe and trust in Christ. It was immediate. We don't do that. We don't do that nowadays, do we? People will trust in Christ, and then, well, I think I'll get baptized, you know, four or five years later. Never. That never happened here. It was always immediate. It was always right now. They believed, and they, they went into the water. In fact, that's what happens. Look here, if you would. Verse 36, and as they went on their way, they came on a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What does hinder me to baptize? And Philip said, If thou believest all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and eunuch, and he baptized him. So again, we see this process. We see the Lord drawing him through his word, the book of Isaiah, not the New Testament, not Ephesians, none of that. We see him simply using the power of the book of Isaiah. Brethren, if you do not believe there's power in that book, then you have done what Andy Stanley has asked everyone to do, and that is to unhitch from the Old Testament, which is nothing more than an old-fashioned devil's trick. Amen? To unhitch you from something that is powerful, something that is needful. Listen, God gave us 66 books. Amen? And as, they, as we always say, right, they weren't written to me, but they're sure for me. There are some books that were written directly to us. Ephesians was, yes, the Pauline letters. Those were written directly to the church, but Isaiah is for me. Deuteronomy is for me. Exodus is for me. It wasn't written to me, but the principles that lie there are for me. Amen? And therefore, you too, as we look at this. It is quite an amazing thing. Again, I'll just give you the other verse. So we have... Uh, Philip dialoguing here, and if you go on a little bit of far, I, I do want to read this one because this is such a good one. Look at Acts chapter 22, just one more, and then we'll, we'll move on. But again, pattern-wise, what did they do in Acts? What did they do? Should we mimic it? Yes. Look at Acts chapter 26. Again, a very familiar portion of Scripture to all of us. Look at verse number 22. This is one of my favorite dialogues and openings and explaining and all of those things. Look there, if you would, at verse 22. Having, therefore, Paul is explaining what happened to him on the road to Damascus, where the Lord intervened and saved his soul. He was actually, as you remember, on his way to kill Christians. He hated the church. He hated Christ. He hated God. He hated 
Christians, he was on his way and God intervened. And this Paul's simply dialoguing with King Agrippa. He says, this is what happened. Here's what happened. Look there again, if you would, at verse 22. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue on to this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those things which the prophets and Moses did say would come. Who are the prophets? Well, I don't know. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, go down the list. What about Moses? What powerful portion of scripture was Paul using here? Who's Moses? What did Moses write? Well, the first five books, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's who Paul is using. Or that's who, uh, yeah, Paul is using here before King Agrippa. He's not using Ephesians. He's using the powerful portion of the Old Testament that is, brother, indeed, alive and well, that speaks of this Christ. This is who he's using. Look what it says. What does he do? He says, I'm just saying what the prophets and Moses did say should come. Verse 23 that Christ should suffer, that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and unto the Gentiles. <laughs> Paul's preaching from Moses and from the prophets, the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, standing right before the king. This is what he's doing. Look there if you would. <laughs> I like this. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. That's what lost people, when you preach the gospel, that's how they react. And like I said, it's like preaching to the bench. They think you're crazy. You're mad. You've gone crazy. Like they accused Christ, remember? They said he was mad too. He was insane. Festus here thinks Paul's insane because he's preaching the gospel. Look there if you would. In verse 25, but he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth. See, here again, here's this dialogue that's taking place. The king knows these things. He's married to a Jew. He realized that, right? His wife was a Jew. He knows these things. Paul says, hey, we're having this discussion, this dialogue, this Christ I'm teaching you right here. You know these things, King Agrippa. For the king knoweth these things, whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For, his thing, uh, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa, uh, one of the saddest things I believe in Scripture, one of the greatest things you can ask is, sirs, what must you do to be saved? One of the saddest things you can respond to the gospel is what King Agrippa does. Look here. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, almost persuaded me to be a Christian. He's preaching the gospel. He's looking at King Agrippa, persuading him. Verse 29, and Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these bonds. The focus of Paul, he was, we call in theology, Christ-centric. <laughs> Christ-centric. His gospel was always center because that's what God uses to save a wretched soul. Not my good analogies, not my funny stories, not, you know, sparks coming out of the ceiling or whatever else might be used. God uses none of that. He uses the gospel, that which has the power to save. This, brethren, is what we should do. We should be mimicking, shouldn't we, exactly what Paul is doing here. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? When one trusts and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, let me specifically say this as Paul said it, the Jesus of the Bible this Jesus. One is justified, one is sealed, one is saved forever. 
It's an amazing thing, brother, when you trust in Christ, believe in him, that the Lord would do all of those glorious things for a lost person. Look back there now. Look at, let's, uh, who was 5 to 12, all right? <clears throat> Should we turn this into a Puritan kind of day, everybody, or not? No, nah, we'll, uh, we'll sum some things up here quickly. Look there. We're going to read together verses 5 through 9. And again, we see the dividing of the gospel. We see what happens. Verse 5, but the Jews which believed not moved with envy took unto them certain lewd fellows and baser sort. I love, I love the way the King James describes those whom the Jews who didn't believe are getting together, this mob, this mob of uh, certain lewd fellows and baser sort, and gathered a company and set all the city in an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, these have turned the world upside down or come hither also. That's an important thing that gets said there. And many times as Western, we don't even realize what's being said. That's a, something, an accusation where they would, should be killed for doing what they're doing. Verse 7, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, one Jesus. Verse 8, and they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. Verse 9, and when they had taken security of Jason and the others, they let them go. Well, brethren, one of the things that we have seen as I preach through the Gospel of Mark and through the book of Acts, and we experience it in our own lives, is that religious people do not like it when the Gospel is being successfully preached. It is a stunning thing. You've always got the Gospel and God doing his thing over here along with who? Who's the evil one that's always there? He's always there behind the scenes, trying to steal the seed, trying to do those things that we see. And it's no difference here. In fact, the gospel success here in Thessalonica ignites the unbelieving Jews' envy and mob. It's just an amazing, they have this insatiable hatred for the gospel. It's a stunning thing. Here, they had it in Berea, they had it in Philippi, they had it everywhere Paul went. Now, <clears throat> if you think the preaching of the gospel is going to saturate, and it should, I pray, I wish it would, amen, saturate whole communities, whole worlds, whole, if you would. But brethren, that's not what we see. We see a few coming to Christ. We see a few that believe, a few who are drawn by God to do that. So what do they do? They get a mob that is composed of the criminal types. <laughs> you know, all I could think of when I was reading this text <laughs> was George Soros. <laughs> I'm sorry. All I could think of was George Soros and getting his mobs together, amen, and burning down the cities like they do. It's an amazing thing. This is exactly what, what the, the Jews are asking this mob to do. These baser sorts were nobody more than criminals who sat around with nothing to do, lazy, idle bums who they get together to come and, let's hey, let's go burn the city down. That's all I could think about. It's just amazing. But isn't it another truth, brother, and concerning it? how people haven't changed, and they're, they're the same today as they were. These baser sorts were the same back then as they are now. It's a stunning thing how relevant the scripture is. But again, you see, this is what they did. It's amazing. These Jews also assume something. They shouldn't, that the missionaries were at the home of Jason. So they, they go and they uh, grab Jason, who was indeed a convert. If we had time, we could drill down at Romans 16, when Paul's saying goodbye to the 25 people. You'll find Jason's name there as he's listed. But here, this Jason, who was indeed a convert, they assume he's there. They find only Jason. The Jews then bring a disturbing, 
and again, as we link this and tie this all together to help us understand it from the West, they bring a charge of disturbing the, if you will, Pax Romana. You ever heard of the Pax Romana? This is something that at that time, it literally means, brethren, Roman peace. So when you disturb the Pax Romana, that brings forth a death sentence to you. You don't do that. This is what they're accusing them of. They're accusing Rome's at peace, and they're bringing this, if you will, they're bringing this down upon our community, the Pax Romana. You did not do that. In fact, verse 6, look there. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and a certain brethren unto the rulers of the city. Is that me? What's going on back there, Brad? You can shut it off. I'm yelling loud enough anyway. Verse 6, And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city. These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, the Pax Romana. They're accusing them of, if you will, destroying the will. It's an amazing thing. Not only that, they accuse Jason, who is a brother, of being, if you will, part of the conspiracy by allowing these insurrectionists to stay at his house. Imagine that. huh? They also accuse the missionaries of defying Caesar's decrees. Again, all of these things, brethren, they ring of the note of death because all of them were to be done. If they did it, it was to bring certain death immediately. Not just one, not just two accusations, but three accusations. They are throwing against others. It's an amazing thing. It really is. The insurrection, the subverting peace in the empire, that was not going to happen. And plotting against Caesar to dare say that there's another king. Oh, brothers and sisters, there is another king. There's only one king. Amen? And that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Christ that's being preached of here. This is who Paul is. Yeah, there's, there's another king. There's only one king, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible, period. That's it. That was death. You didn't do that. Caesar would come along and remove you from his community rather quickly, amen, for any one of these things. And this is exactly what the unbelieving Jews are hoping for. Let us close here with verses 10, 11, and 12. All of these accusations, all of these things. Look at verse number 10. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night into Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily. That's an important statement, whether these, those things were so. Therefore, we see again the fruit of God as he's... Paul is preaching as they're doing as God is using them. Therefore, many of them believed, also honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. Well, brethren, as soon as nightfall comes, it's amazing, isn't it? The disciples spirit Paul and Silas right on out of the city and send them to Berea, which is an amazing thing, which is where the term being a Berean comes from. Are you a Berean this morning? Well, it's this afternoon now. Are you a Berean? This morning, this afternoon, are you a Berean daily? It's interesting, isn't it, brother, that if, think of this for a moment, brother, and any Bible teacher, I don't care who it is, any Bible teacher who is afraid of those sitting out there that we are preaching and teaching to, if you're afraid that the brothers and sisters are turning in the pages of their Bibles to see whether or not what I'm saying is true, then you do not even, you shouldn't come anywhere near a pulpit. You shouldn't come anywhere near a teaching spot. You know why? Because they checked Paul. 
they checked Silas. Not only did they check him once in a while, they checked him what? Daily. These men were preaching, and they're sitting there just like we should all be, brother. Look, look, look here. Uh, Pastor Mike just said that. Is that true? Pastor Mike just said that. Is that true according to Scripture? Has Pastor Mike changed anything? This is what they're looking for. You know why? Because that never changes. They were of more noble character. They were the ones who had their Bibles out. They were the ones looking at it daily as they were receiving what Paul and Silas were saying. And brethren, all of us should be too. You know, that's where cults come from. That's how people get involved in cults. They get involved in it because the cult leader will say, just put your Bibles away. I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'll direct you in the truth. Don't ever, 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 ever fall for that. Ever. You are a Berean, just like I am. You should look in your Bible and go, yep, that's true. Yes, there's only one Christ. There's only one gospel. Yes, that's true. How does one be saved? We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We follow through with him in what we call believer's baptism. All of these things are present in our text. All of those things which we should be, brethren, mimicking. It is an amazing thing. What a practical point it really is for us to consider. Amen? We must turn to God's unchanging word. And make sure that I or any Bible teacher is not changing it and they're speaking the truth to you. Amen. There's this thing that we believe in called soul competency. One is is accountable to God individually. You understand that? What that means is that what you believe, you're going to be held accountable to God individually. The teachers are, as James says, none of us, we shouldn't be more, how should we say, you should be fearful about what you're teaching because... It's such an important matter, such an important thing that you're saying and teaching to the brethren. We should all be Bereans. We should all follow their footsteps, if you will. Checking the pastor. In fact, I got, I guess, summarily tossed out of a church because I would hear, a preach, hear him preach and I'd go up to him and go, that's, that's, not, that's not what the Bible's not saying that. The Bible doesn't teach that the Antichrist is a nine-foot-tall black man that's going to put the mark of the beast on you with his lips. The Bible doesn't teach that, but that's what was being taught. Put your Bibles away. Don't worry, I'll tell you what the truth is. No, God will tell you what the truth is. Amen? All right, let's pray together this morning. Father, we again are so thankful and grateful for the word of God this morning. We're thankful that it is indeed that which keeps us upright. We thank you for the work that you did in our text here upon those whom Paul was dialoguing with, those to whom he was opening the scriptures, explaining them, those to whom he was uh, uh, continuing to teach and preach and proclaim. Father, we are so grateful for that. And may we be the same May we be faithful men found opening and alleging and dialoguing and preaching the word of God. And Father, we pray this morning that as the word has gone out, that's why we flip in our Bibles. The word is the power. Not the pastor's stories or any kind of cutesy things. It is indeed the word of God. And we read it this morning. We've heard it. Father, now we pray that the spirit of God will take those words, sink them deep down into our hearts down into our ears, into our minds. And Father, we, we thank you that he does that. And Father, this morning we pray for anyone who's lost, who is sitting here listening, 
hearing. We pray that maybe today will be the day that you draw them to the cross, that the Spirit of God regenerates them, that they might see the Lord Jesus Christ lifted up, and that they might believe on this Christ, the Christ of the Bible, he who died according to the Scriptures, he who was buried according to the Scriptures, and he who rose again from the dead according to the Scriptures. He's the one. And Father, it is indeed as now as we gather around the Lord's table together, it is he whom we celebrate. It is he whom we are waiting for to come again to claim his bride, that which he made spotless with his own blood. Father, we pray in his name and all God's people said, amen. Amen.